Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. My angle in that is that he was a double agent and he was trying to find out all sides' points of view. And he probably was picking the British brains at the same time he was picking the Americans' brains and building little redoubts in the meantime. That's Rick Detweiler. And he has a new article highlighting the actions of a mysterious French officer long before the Marquis de Lafayette ever entered the fray. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Tonight, our guest is Rick Detweiler, talking about a new article he's published in the Journal of the American Revolution, highlighting the actions of a little-known French officer who goes by Monsieur Dubuque. Now, Dubuque is not the Marquis de Lafayette. He does not march side-by-side with George Washington. But his mere presence alone, as early as 1775 really makes us reconsider the French role in the early years of the American Revolution. It's a fascinating study on how foreign nationals, driven by maybe the cause of liberty or some old world bad habits, found their way to North America in time for the American Revolution. It's also a great study on some of the detective work that historians use, piecing together Uh, where someone is at a given time when they're not necessarily the most well-known or easy-to-track-down individual. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Rick Detweiler. Rick Detweiler, thank you for joining us. Well, hi, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you, and I'm glad to talk all about Monsieur Dubuque with you. Tell us about your background. Well, it's a very interesting story. My background is that my I grew up in New Jersey, Scotch Plains specifically, where there's a very old inn, and there had been a battle in the Revolution a mile from my house. And I ended up growing up on tales of what happened. I wanted to know what really happened. And I ended up writing a little book at it for the Bicentennial in 1977. It's called The Battle of the Short Hills, June 26, 1777. And then I ended up up here in Boston working... First of all, as a preservationist, uh, architectural, historical preservationist on Fennel Hall Markets Project, and I got into the history of Fennel Hall and Paul Revere's house and Colonel James Barrett's farm, and I did all these historic structure reports, and I kept running into these unique people that were never really recognized historically for what they had done, which was quite dramatic. What is the common narrative of French participation in the American Revolution? Well, we usually just assume that most people know by now that French helped uh, 
us win the revolution, and we actually couldn't have won it without them and the Spanish assisting us with foreign aid and troops and uh, naval uh, vessels. Uh, but the the general knowledge of Americans about uh, the French assistance in the revolution, I think, really concentrates around Lafayette, who was the last surviving major general and who was had a dual citizenship and did really quite unbelievable assistance militarily, especially in Virginia, as well as enlisting the aid of the king. And and uh, that's the most common view of the French assistance in the revolution. But what I've done is taken it back another generation, really back to the 1760s. And, and Monsieur Dubuque is a part of that, what I would call an operation of the Intendant des Colonies, uh, Monsieur Le Grand Dubuque, John Baptiste Dubuque, who was uh, little known but well known to uh, uh, Necker, who was Louis the Sixteenth's uh, finance minister, and all of his people, uh, including the Duc de Choiseul, who appointed him in 1764. What skill set could a French officer lend to the Continental Army that an American officer could not in 1775? Well, there were very qualified uh, uh, American officers who had been through the French and Indian Wars, and some of them were engineers who took uh, at the siege of Louisbourg in Nova Scotia, had learned the trade from uh, Jean-Henri Bastide, who was a British engineer with a French name because he was of French extraction. But uh, people that uh, were familiar with engineering were few and far between, and the one that comes most to mind is uh, Richard Gridley, who was the American uh, engineer who actually built the little redoubt on Bunker Hill. And the only problem with that is that he was the one that was shot in the thigh and couldn't function because of his wounds. And that's what uh, brought uh, Monsieur Dubuque into the picture, because he was a trained engineer from Martinique, uh, French uh, colony, and he had been in trade with the people up in Beverly. So he brought his expertise up, and uh, afterwards, he, after he even left in 1775, there were people who were asking for French West Indian engineers to come and help them in the revolution because they were short of engineers. When do we first hear of Dubuque in the historical record? Well, it's a tough call because it depends which Dubuque and when. But when we first hear about this uh, Dubuque in Boston, which is uh, my concentration now, um, it's in actually July of uh, 1775 when uh, Kemble, Colonel uh, Kemble uh, and Montresor, I guess both, uh, have references to this Frenchman Dubuque being an engineer serving in place of Gridley, who was disabled because of his wound. Uh, so we hear about him in July, but never from the American side, because I believe they they kept him secret. As much as Dubuque spilled all his beans to General Gage later on in August when he wrote the letter about everything he had been doing for the last three months. When I first heard of Dubuque is an interesting story because uh, my wife, Ellen, who teaches French, had taught French at four different universities, um, had an Aunt Mary Lyons who did research on the Battle of Bunker Hill 
her husband was in a, the uh, war trials in Nuremberg as an attorney. Uh, but they lived in Paris for a while and got her interested in French and me interested in uh, her research on the Battle of Bunker Hill. And she found a little uh, old black and white uh, photostat that she had gotten at William L. Clement's library years ago and saved it because it referred to this Frenchman writing to General Gage about the time of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Anyway, that was my first hearing of that Dubuque in the 1980s. So that's that's the beginnings of the Dubuque saga for me. Do you speculate this figure is actually Jean-Baptiste Dubuque? Why do you believe this to be the case? Well, he was the only Dubuque, and it's spelled with a Q, which is different. They all seem to have had different... Uh, little suffixes after their names and they spelled Dubuque differently for the different branches of the family. And this particular Jean-Baptiste Dubuque was born in 1752 in, in Martinique and he was the proper age. He was 23 years old in 1775. He was with Noyes Regiment, who was Lafayette's brother-in-law, and he was appointed that to that in 1770. And he was um, actually wrote a little biography that I have right here that he he did in 1780. Uh, but he actually was born in Martinique. He was a sous lieutenant in uh, the regiment of Noailles, where Lafayette also served. And uh, in 76, he was at the Place de Cap in the Isle of Saint-Domingue. Well, he never mentions Boston in 75. But Saint-Domingue is where he got the powder um, that was coming up the coast to the uh, Massachusetts Provincial uh, Council and Committee of Safety and Supplies. So he's the best candidate, and his father happened to be the uh, actual uh, intendant des colonies. He was in charge of colonial commerce, and he, he lists him in his r recommendation to Gage he refers to him and the Count de Choiseul-Muse, who was the governor of Martinique and uh, general, commanding general there. So both of these people were as high up as you can get with the King of France. And uh, Jean-Baptiste Dubuque was the one who fits the whole schedule, actually. Although there was another Abraham Dubuque who was at Yorktown with J.B. Dubuque. He finally served at Yorktown in 1781. So there were brothers, but they weren't the right age. Brothers and cousins. So that's by process of elimination we, we got to J.B. Dubuque. Dubuque served as an engineer in the war. What does he construct? He actually, on in Somerville, now Somerville, then I guess the far reaches of Cambridge overlooking uh, Charlestown and the British fortifications then built on Bunker Hill after after the fight at Breed's Hill. So there were the two hills and there was that big contention over the names of the hills. But the, the British built their redoubt on top of Bunker Hill, which was the bigger, higher hill. And uh, the Americans were facing it after June 19th. 
15th or 17th of Battle of Bunker Hill, the uh, Americans started constructing these redoubts on Winter Hill and Prospect Hill in what's now Somerville. And uh, what's interesting is that he did build a, a couple of fortifications. He worked on them through June and July after the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, but he was there working on those before Washington got there with Lee. And uh, even before the uh, secret aid uh, gentleman who went to uh, Philadelphia, the Frenchman who some people have heard about, who is uh, Monsieur Bon Vouloir, which means good wishes. So it might have been a, a little bit of a nom de plume. But anyway, uh, that gentleman arrived to negotiate secret aid from France in September of 1775, the month after Dubuque left. So it's a very interesting story in terms of what he did. And we did find two plans in the Library of Congress that show rebel uh, fortifications. So they were obviously drawn from the British point of view. And uh, Dubuque's English was almost perfect, as you can see from his correspondence. And the story in the family also is that he was a translator. Talk about the significance of the French Redoubt in Medford, 1775. Well, what's amazing about that is that it was on Henry Pelham's map of Boston, this very detailed map uh, done by uh, John Singleton Copley's brother and uh, half-brother, uh, and it's dated with his pass through the lines given by Gage, uh, August 21st, 1775. And the actual date of all of Dubuque's letters are June 20th. So the day before, Dubuque spills his beans about all of the, the fortifications being built on Winter and Prospect Hill and in the middle on Central Hill, which is where the French Redoubt was. And uh, they actually show on the map and are labeled French Redoubt, the one in between Prospect and Winter Hill. And he said it was on Prospect Hill on the Medford side, which is exactly where that redoubt is. Dubuque will begin writing to Gage shortly after this. Why? What does he say? He was a very intelligent guy. And what I was surprised myself at how much he gave in the way of information on his connections uh, he didn't give his American connections except for uh, Putnam and Washington and Lee, but he said that uh, uh, Putnam had uh, given him a ride down to uh, Cambridge from Salem, where he had been staying. He had a contact in Beverly. Uh, Josiah Batchelder had been trading with uh, Monsieur Dubuque uh, in Martinique uh, in La Trinité, uh, where he actually um, was the commander of that uh, regiment in Martinique, in, in Saint-Pierre, Trinité. Uh, at any rate, to make a long story short, uh, Dubuque did head uh, to uh, back. He, he, he did his work. He decided he wanted to go home. And he, he went up to Newburyport first to try to get a ship to Martinique. Um, he got a, a, some kind of a, a commission or something uh, from uh, Putnam, but he, and Lee, I guess, Lee had his letter 
to Putnam. Uh, at any rate, um, they got a ride back to Boston. He did from Salem, uh, and Marblehead. He had been in Marblehead staying at an inn. And uh, he came back on the ship that was taking the poor from Boston to Salem. And he managed to just barely catch the ship back to Boston. And I believe that he went there, first of all, to get a ride back, which is speculated by some of the other uh, French uh, spies that are in the uh, Clements Library papers. Uh, but what's interesting is that he did get back somehow, even though he said he wanted to even serve the British. He obviously went back and was in uh, Cape, uh, Cape Francois, which is uh, Haiti today, in uh, Saint-Domingue. Uh, and he was actually uh, there as in, uh, in the military capacity by 1776 in April. So he did get back to his French roots. <laughs> despite offering to serve the British. And my, my angle in that is that he was a double agent and he was trying to find out all sides' points of view. And he probably was picking the British brains at the same time he was picking the Americans' brains and building little redoubts in the meantime to help them out. So it's a, it's a long, complicated story, but uh, you have to read a little between the lines because they didn't write everything down. What does Dubuque's role in the conflict tell us about the greater narrative of the American Revolution? Well, the most amazing thing that it reveals to me through his family connections is that the French had a, a kind of a, a, a behind-the-scenes operation that was uh, actually run by the Entente des Colonies uh, Jean-Baptiste Dubuque, who was actually called Le Grand Dubuque by Marie Antoinette. At any rate, um, these guys um, were cousins and brothers and nephews of, of Le Grand Dubuque, who was in touch with Necker, who was the finance minister, and the Duc de Choiseul. And they were actually running, I think, as a back-channel operation, this American aid uh, and never got named, unbelievably. And that's my theory at the moment. And there's a lot more to support that, but it's not in the article yet. <laughs> Rick Detweiler, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.